Have you ever thought that you could just do it on your own, that you didn't need anybody else? When I was probably six years old, we were living in Indianapolis, and I I don't know exactly what happened, but I remember my mom telling me that there was something that I couldn't do that I wanted to do. I wanted to go over to my friend's house. I wanted to do something, and she said no. And at that point, I had had enough of it. I said, you know what? I don't need you anymore. I don't need this family anymore. I'm better off on my own. And so I decided to go get my backpack and pack up everything and said, I'm moving out. And so I got what, uh, what any six-year-old thinks you need. I got a flashlight, I got a pillow, I got a jar of pickles, and I got a sleeve of Oreos. And I thought, that's what I need. If I have this, I'll be all set. So I pack it up, put my backpack on, and I walk out the door, and I start heading off. And I get about two blocks away from the house, and I'm starting to get into some unfamiliar territory And this whole time I find out that they're kind of like watching me from afar. Like they can see my every move. And uh, I get there and I kind of look around. It's like, you know what? Maybe maybe I'm not better off on my own. Maybe I I do need these people. And there are a lot of us, I think we like the idea of flying solo. We we love the thought of being the lone ranger, the self-made man. But the reality is we need each other. As we've looked at this idea of gospel fluency, we've talked about to be fluent is to be, uh, have a language where you, you think in that language. It becomes like your, your natural your thought. You're, you're not translating in your head, but, but you see the world through that language. And we talked about this idea of speaking the truth in love, and to speak the truth in love is to speak the gospel in love, that we're speaking the gospel to ourselves and we're speaking the gospel to others. Last week, we talked about this idea of from fruit to root and from root to fruit. So when you have bad fruit in your life, when you're experiencing fear or you're experiencing anxiety or you're experiencing this this desire for control, you have to ask yourself, why am I experiencing this? Why am I acting like this? And so you work your way down by asking these questions, well, well, who do I believe I am? What am I believing about my identity? And then what what do I believe that God has or hasn't done? And then ultimately, you get down to the root. At this moment, who am I believing God to be? Who do I believe God is? And you confess that. You get down to the root of it. You repent. And then you build it back up based on true belief. So who is God? Who am I believing God to be? And then what do I believe that God has done? And then in light of that, who am I? What is my identity? And then based on my identity, then comes my actions, my behaviors, the the good fruit that I want to produce. And all of these themes, they, they culminate in Christian community. See, we need one another to see and remember and apply the truth of God to our lives. Modern Christianity has become so individualized. A lot of people have relegated their spiritual life to a screen. It's it's their phone, it's a tablet, it's it's a TV screen. And and the common reasoning is people say, I believe in Jesus. You know, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I have a personal relationship with Christ. I don't need the church. I don't need community. I don't need other people. I, I can pray on my own. I can read the Bible by myself. I can listen to sermon podcasts. I I can listen to worship music. And all of that's good, right? That's good. 
I hope that we're devoting ourselves to, to personal and private disciplines. But to disregard community is to disobey God. The New Testament knows no such thing of a churchless Christian. A churchless Christian is an oxymoron. A churchless Christian in the New Testament is like a unicorn. It doesn't exist. It's not real. If you're trying to grow spiritually without the church, you're doing it wrong. A majority of the New Testament letters were written to churches. They were written in order to be read in community, in the churches. Letters like Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Philippians wasn't written to a guy named Philip. It was written to the church at Philippi, the believers that were gathered together. In the New Testament alone, there's this phrase, one another, that's used a hundred times. In 59 of those times, it is made as a specific command to believers, teaching us how and how not to relate to one another. 59 specific commands. Let me share with you just a few. John 13, 34 tells us to love one another. Galatians 5, 13 says, serve one another in love. Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens. Ephesians 4, 32, forgiving each other. Ephesians 5, 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another. Colossians 3.16, we're to teach one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we're to encourage one another. James 5.16, we're to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other. And 1 Peter 4.9, we're to offer hospitality to one another. These are just 10 of the one another commands that are found in the New Testament. See, you can't fulfill God's will for your life alone. You need community. The New Testament assumes that Christians will be living out the gospel with one another. See, you can't carry one another's burdens by listening to a sermon podcast. You can't encourage one another by live streaming a worship service by yourself. You can't offer hospitality to one another when you're home alone. See, we need each other. Because you can see things that I can't see, and I can see things that you can't see. All of us have blind spots, and, and we can forget the truth of the gospel from time to time. So we need to be speaking the truth of Jesus into each other's lives. None of us is as wise as all of us. The best picture I know for the kind of community that God desires for us is found in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is actually the second volume to the Gospel of Luke. It's sometimes referred to as Luke-Acts because it's two volumes. Luke is the author of both. The Gospel of Luke is part one. The book of Acts is part two. And the book of Acts details what happens after Jesus ascends into heaven. Now, we know that Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. And Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection. So that means there's about 10 days between when Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost. How long do you think those 10 days felt? 
right? You're, you're the disciples. You've spent three years with Jesus every single day. You watched him be crucified, buried, raised to life. You saw him ascend into heaven. And Jesus told you, he said that when I leave, I'm going to send another helper, a comforter, to come and be with you. But Jesus didn't tell them how long it was going to take. He didn't tell them when it was going to happen. With each passing day, they're thinking, what, what are we doing? What are we supposed to do? And so Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. It's one of the major Jewish pilgrimage festivals. And Peter, he stands up and preaches the gospel. This is the same Peter in the same city that 50 days earlier, he denied even knowing Jesus three times. And that same Peter gets up and he tells everybody what Jesus has done for them. He explains to the crowd, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done for you. Talk about a changed life, right? So he gives this gospel message, and it says that the people are cut to the heart, and they ask, what shall we do? And Peter says in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we read that 3,000 people were added to the church that day. 3,000 people responded to the invitation and were baptized into Christ. And right after that, we get this beautiful picture of what this new community of believers, the church of Jesus, was like. It was a community of disciples together, truly devoted to one another. Let's read it together in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Acts 2 beginning in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Church, this is Christian community at its finest. Three times in these six verses, it talks about the believers being together. Verse 44 says, all the believers were together. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together. Verse 46, they ate together. Now, if you look at verse 46, in the original language, that word for they continued to meet together, it's the same word that's used for devoted in verse 42. So it's literally saying they devoted themselves to meeting together. To be devoted to something means that you are intensely committed. Hebrews 10.25 tells us, let us not give up the habit of meeting together. Now, you know what it's like when you've had a good habit. Like maybe you used to exercise, but then the gym closed down and you stopped going. Or maybe you had this really good eating plan, but then you kind of got off the diet wagon and, and you stopped. And in the end, that's going to show. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not so obvious, but it's going to make a difference. 
And God wants us to come together to meet with each other and with Him. But Satan wants to stop us from coming together. I'm not being dramatic here. Jesus told Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. That's what the shaking can do. That's what this time of sifting can do in our lives. They devoted themselves to meeting together because they had people like Peter and the other disciples who heard these warnings from the Lord. The first apostles knew that when we stop meeting together, we start falling apart. And look at the result of their devotion in verse 47. It says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Here's the truth that I really want you to see this morning. We grow most when we go together. You and I, we grow most when we go together. Notice what the early church did together. They pursued God and His Word together. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They they devoted themselves to, to the study of God's Word and the study of Scripture. The early church shared life together. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the fellowship, and that's the Greek word koinonia, which doesn't mean they just hung out together, but they shared life together. They they bore each other's burdens. They weren't just acquaintances, but, but they knew each other. They were committed to each other. The early church ate together. It talks about how they would meet and they would break bread in each other's homes. They spent time with one another. They got to know each other. They they shared meals together. The early church worshiped together. Verse 43 says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Verse 47 says that they praised God. That they came together and they worshiped. They, They praised God together. The early church sacrificed for one another. Verses 44 and 45 talks about how all the believers were together. They had everything in common. Every day they continued to meet together, or they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They didn't just look out for themselves, they looked out for each other. When there was a need that could be met, they didn't look to the government, they didn't look to somebody else, they didn't say, oh, that person I'm sure will take care of it. They said, no, there's a need that I can meet, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give up so, so that somebody can be taken care of. And the early church lived on mission together. Verse 46 says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, when it says that they met together in the temple courts, that wasn't Christian church. This wasn't their their church gathering. They went to where their Jewish friends were. You have to keep in mind that Christianity was not a recognized religion at the time. It was an underground movement. The early church didn't have church buildings. The synagogues and the temple were where the Jews worshipped. The early church, they met together in homes. And so when it says that they met together in the temple courts, that means they're going to where the people are. They're going to where the greatest opportunity is for people to hear about Jesus. They're going to the places where people have a chance to see the difference that Jesus has made in their life. 
And I'll tell you, that's why I'm so excited for our four-by-four serving opportunities here. We started this last year, and we're continuing it this year, where from October 22nd through November 19th, we have four weeks of four serving opportunities, F-O-R. And most of these serving opportunities are going to be spearheaded. They're going to be led by our small groups. And so if your small group has not signed up for a serving opportunity yet, make sure that you do that this week. If you're not in a group, we still want to give you the opportunity to be a part of this. You can join us on our four-day on November 11th. And what we're going to do over this four-week period is we're going to go out to where the needs are. We're going to show our community this is who we are. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And we want to show you who Jesus is. We are for the people that God is for, and God is for you. And so what do we do? We, we, we come together on Sundays, and we worship together, we praise God together, we get into God's Word together, we share in communion together, and then we go out into our community and we live on mission. And we come together and we gather on Sundays, we encourage one another, we build each other up, we pray together, we worship, we share in communion, and then we go out into our community and we live on mission. And we do that over and over and over, and that is the way of Jesus. And we do it together. We grow most when we go together. And what was the motive? What was the reason for this, this togetherness, this one anothering they had for each other? It was Jesus. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. This like-mindedness, this, this unity of spirit and mind that the early church had, Paul bases it on the unity that they have in Jesus. It's based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So the unity that we experience and the unity that we are called to keep is because of Jesus. Verse 4 says that there's one Lord. It is Jesus who unites us. Acts 4 verse 32 says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that they had any of their possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. The believers shared everything they had. Why? Well, if you keep on reading, the next verse talks about them testifying to Jesus' resurrection. It all goes back to Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. The supernatural unity and devotion they had to one another was because Jesus was their core. Jesus is the explanation for their dedication. And when we realize this, it leads us from Bible fluency to gospel fluency when we discuss in our groups together. I want to make sure that, that, that you hear what I'm trying to say here. The goal is not Bible study. Okay, the goal is not Bible study. The goal is not to see who knows the Bible the most. Because the Bible does not save you. Let me repeat that. The Bible does not save you. One of the sobering realities is there will be a lot of people in hell 
who know the Bible better than some people in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? Because the Bible doesn't save you. Jesus does. And I love the Bible. You will not find anybody who reveres and respects the Bible more than I do. And we should study the Bible because it's truth. We should study the Bible because it is God's Word. But the Bible was given to us not to save us, but to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the object of our worship. We worship Jesus, not the Bible. And one of the greatest discoveries you can ever make in reading the Bible is when you realize that all of Scripture points to Jesus. Let me show you some examples. Genesis chapter 3, the story of, of Adam and Eve, where their sin gets them expelled from the perfect Garden of Eden. And in Genesis 3, we find the first promise of a Savior. God tells the serpent that the offspring of the woman will crush his head. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus, the ultimate seed of the woman who defeats sin and Satan. Genesis 6 through 9 tells the story of Noah and the ark. The story of Noah's ark is a symbol of salvation. Just as Noah and his family were saved from the flood by entering the ark, we are saved from the judgment of sin by entering into a relationship with Christ, who is our ark of safety. Genesis 22 tells the story of Abraham and Isaac. The willingness of Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac on Mount Moriah is a striking picture of God the Father offering his son Jesus as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. God provided a ram as a substitute for Isaac, foreshadowing Jesus as the ultimate sacrificial lamb. Genesis 37 through 50 tells the story of Joseph. I don't know if you've ever noticed how Joseph's story mirrors Christ in many ways. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, sold for silver, falsely accused, and ultimately exalted to a position of authority and salvation for his family. This reflects the rejection, betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. Or what about Moses in the Exodus? Exodus 3 through 14. Moses, as a deliverer of God's people from slavery in Egypt, points to Jesus, who delivers us from the bondage of sin. The Passover lamb, whose blood protected the Israelites, symbolizes Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Even some of our favorite children's stories point to Jesus. 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. David's victory over the giant Goliath illustrates Jesus as the ultimate conqueror of the forces of evil. Just as David defeated the seemingly unbeatable enemy, Jesus triumphs over sin, death, and Satan. The story of Jonah. Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish for three days parallels Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus himself in Matthew 12 refers to Jonah and his sign pointing to his death and resurrection. Or what about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3? They were miraculously delivered from the fiery furnace when they refused to bow down to the false gods. And in that furnace, there was a fourth figure there. It's a prefiguration of Christ walking with us in the midst of our trials, 
preserving us in the face of our death. See, Jesus is the hero of the story. Not Moses, not Jonah, not David, not you. You are not the hero of your story. Jesus is. And that is good news. Because if you're the hero of your story, what happens when things begin to unravel? What happens when things start to fall apart? Well, when you're the hero, then you have to trust in yourself to fix things. When you're the hero and you're unable to fix it, you feel like a failure. You feel worthless. You feel like it's all your fault. And I'm telling you, the gospel is a better story. Jesus is a better hero. And so when we study the Bible together, we need to remind each other, it's all about Jesus. He's the hero. We need each other. We are better together. And I don't know, maybe you're thinking, listen, I've got friends, I've got buddies, I'm around people at work, you know, I sit next to people in church. I'm telling you, there's a difference between proximity and impact. You can be around all the people in the world and still be lonely and still miss the power of the gospel in your life. And so the question I have for you was, when was the last time someone spoke the gospel in love into an area of your life? When was the last time that happened? Your answer to that question will tell you whether or not you're truly living in Christian community. We grow from others speaking the gospel in love into areas of our disbelief. When we're each tempted away from God's story, they point us back. This week I was able to spend some time with a man in our community who has some serious health issues. And he's not sure how much longer he has to live. Maybe days, maybe weeks, could be months, possibly even years, but, but, but there's no foreseeable health comeback for him. We're going to call him Bill. And Bill believes in Jesus. He stated unashamedly to me that Jesus is his Lord and Savior. He talked about how he's a man of prayer and he can look back on his life and see how God has answered so many prayers in his life how he has felt the prayers of people when, when they had been lifting him up in prayer. And Bill and his wife used to be a part of this church. But almost 20 years ago, they stopped attending, and they haven't been attending anywhere since then. And he told me he knows that he should be in church. He knows that, that, that being a part of, of church is important, but he says, I can worship at home. I can pray at home. I know that God is everywhere. I didn't even prompt him, but... Bill started sharing some of his past mistakes and some sins that he's been holding on to. He shared some regrets and some guilt that he feels. And I could tell as he was sharing that this has been weighing on him a really, really long time. And so I just sat and listened as he confessed. When he finished, I asked him about his faith and I asked him about Jesus. And again, he said that, that Jesus is his Lord and Savior. I reminded him that when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. That Jesus fully paid the penalty for all of our sins. And then that if you're a Christian, that God no longer holds our sins against us. If we belong to Jesus, we are forgiven completely. 
And he talked about how he felt just this huge weight lifted off of his chest. He talked about how much he appreciated this conversation and, and how much better he felt. And, and I was grateful to have had this time to spend with him. But I will tell you the thing that stood out to me the most was here was a guy who had no community. For almost 20 years, he lived his faith in isolation, believing Satan's lies that God was still holding his sins against him. There was no one in his life speaking the truth of the gospel into his areas of unbelief. There was no one giving him the hope of Jesus, no one reminding him that his sins were forgiven. Church, we need each other. You need people in your life, and people need you in their life. The gospel isn't just for you, it's for us. And that matters immensely. So if you came here today searching for community, if you came here today feeling alone, maybe you came here today not knowing how badly you really need others, you are in the right place today. This church is imperfect. We are a, a body of sinners, and, and we will admit that. But we belong to Jesus. And we are redeemed. And we are committed to speaking the truth of Jesus into each other's lives. Would you pray with me? God, as we look at that early church, we see the unity, we see the devotion they had to one another, and God, I pray that we would realize that's something that we need as well. We need each other. God, there, there is so much in our life that, that we can't see. We, we have blind spots. We have areas of, of unbelief, and we need to be speaking Jesus and encouragement and hope and life into each other's lives. God, you saved us for yourself, but you did not save us in isolation. You, you saved us to be part of a community, your church, the kingdom that you're building and you're establishing. And God, I pray that, that us as a local congregation and us as believers throughout this, throughout this community and throughout this county and throughout this nation, that we would come together and realize that we truly are better together. If there's anybody here today who has been living life on their own, I pray that they would discover that life is better when it's lived together. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We all pray this in his name. Amen.